0: In June of 2004, a pilot program for a new method of Chinese diplomacy began in Tashkent, Uzbekistan. This pilot was successful enough that the Chinese government decided to invest in the first of what would become many Confucius Institutes in Seoul, South Korea in November of that same year. The second Confucius Institute also opened in November of 2004 at the University of Maryland campus in the United States. And in subsequent years, hundreds of these institutes opened in countries around the world with a particular focus, in the United States, Japan, and South Korea. By 2019, there were 530 Confucius Institutes in several dozen countries on six continents. And the goal, as of 2019, was to have 1,000 of them open by 2020. The Confucius, in the name Confucius Institute, was a Chinese philosopher who lived from 551 to 479 BC, and his outlooks and ideas were considered to be valuable to and representative of pre-20th century Chinese ambitions. His work was heavily criticized and to some degree clamped down upon during the Cultural Revolution era, beginning in about 1912 and continuing until the 1970s, however, because of his perceived connection to a previous model of Chinese rule, organization, and values. And the so called feudal mentality he supposedly espoused was said to be holding back the glorious Communist Revolution. That China might otherwise enjoy. Interestingly, one of the more prominent anti-Confucianists was a Chinese scientist, philosopher, and author named Cheng Duxiu, who promoted, among other things, a deviation from the traditional adherence to Confucian values to focus instead on traits and goals like independence, progress aggressiveness, cosmopolitanism, utilitarianism, and the pursuit of scientific knowledge, as opposed to ideas promoted and reinforced by Confucianism, like servility, passivity, and obedience, conservatism, traditionalism, ritualism, and the idea that some people are visionaries with natural prophetic and leadership gifts, and should thus be followed and obeyed unquestioningly by everyone else. Chen was, in other words, a big fan of individualism, democracy, humanism, and the scientific method, things that were popular in China for a time during the period between World War I and World War II, but which were later either appropriated and used to orient the country toward other goals, or dismissed entirely in the post-World War II era. Confucius was used as a political tool, Mao Zedong, often called Chairman Mao, the leader of China for a time, to criticize and target his enemies with violence. And to be fair, these enemies often targeted him with the same. The most ardent of these anti-Confucian waves under Mao's prominence actually emerged in the aftermath of a failed assassination attempt against Mao, which then led to a campaign called criticize Lin, criticize Confucius, which is exactly what it sounds like with Lin being one of the people who tried to off Mao, and Confucius being that old philosopher that everyone was hating on during this period. But post-Mao, in the early 2000s in particular, the Chinese government under then-President Hu Jintao found his ideas and his name to be useful in a global rebranding effort that was meant to both help orient a now rapidly industrializing country and to help reintroduce that country to a world that primarily perceived China through the Cold War lens, that of a single party essentially dictatorial regime that claimed to be communist but mostly just seemed to be abusive and poor and a threat to everyone else on the planet. Confucius and his ancient philosophies gave Chinese diplomacy and culture a more refined, thoughtful, calm, ancient, and non-threatening flavor. It also helped the government nudge their own people toward an obedient and quiet and uncomplaining orientation that nicely aligned with their desire to become the world's factory. They needed a whole lot of workers to show up and perform back-breaking labor seven days a week, 16 hours a day. And it turned out that a great way to do this was to make that kind of labor, and importantly, uncomplaining and unquestioning labor, a philosophical virtue espoused by the state and ostensibly respected by all, because this was considered to be part of their cultural heritage. Thus, Confucius, became not just a mascot for China's efforts internationally, his name and face fronting a foreign diplomacy effort that oriented around teaching the Chinese language and teaching about Chinese culture through these institutes that they built around the world, which they could also used for espionage purposes, but on the surface at least, which served mostly as the home base of educational services for locals, but also as a sort of founding figure of Chinese philosophy, respected and heralded as being one of the reasons the country is so great and destined for more such great things, representing all that is good and pure and that which should be respected, even though he and his work were dragged through the mud throughout much of recent Chinese history. What I'd like to talk about today is another diplomatic effort, also quite widespread, but with a very different flavor and ideology backing it, which has become popular and prominent in Chinese global messaging efforts in recent years. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to start with today comes from the Sydney Morning Herald, and it's entitled, Army of Fake Fans Boosts China's Wolf Warriors on Social Media. Wolf Warrior 2 is an action film that hit Chinese theaters in 2017, And it's somewhat typical of the type of popcorn flick that does well in China, and worldwide really, in the sense that it's got explosions and guns and attractive people doing brave things, but also in the sense that it is steeped in patriotic overtones and takes not very well-concealed aim at some of China's real-world perceived diplomatic and military enemies. When it came out, it broke a bunch of box office records and it became the first non-English language film to be included on the top 100 highest grossing films list worldwide, and that's despite the fact that it was only really shown in theaters in China. The main character in this film franchise is a sort of loose cannon soldier who works with a special ops team that takes down bad guys around the world, and who then becomes a mercenary who does essentially the same thing. So he's now working outside the formal system of command, but continuing to do brave deeds that protect the Chinese homeland. A consistent theme in action films worldwide, but one that felt particularly resonant in China at that moment in time as the 2010s through the 2020s was when Chinese foreign policy became a little bit more aggressive rather than humble, an intentional shift in tone meant to resonate with the citizenry and help the president of China, Xi Jinping, strike a more domineering diplomatic tone, one that was a bit more in line with China's growing influence in the world. Economic, diplomatic, and military and one that would reinforce the position of the ruling party at the top of China's one-party system. So this film was a somewhat generic popcorn flick, but it was also popular and contained a message that resonated with a lot of Chinese people and which helped augment a collection of ideas that the government was hoping to instill in their citizens and eventually other people around the world as well. The term wolf warrior is derived from this movie, which again is a bit Rambo like, very macho and aggressive and noble in an outsidery way, but it has an outsideriness that is laced with patriotism and respect for the ruling party. The tagline for this movie was, quote, Whoever attacks China will be killed no matter how far the target is. End quote. And the film ends with the message, quote, Citizens of the PRC, when you encounter danger in a foreign land, do not give up. Please remember, at your back stands a strong motherland, end quote. So, a little on the nose at times, but it gets the message across. And arguably, it's not really that much more overt in this type of messaging than U.S.-made flicks like Rambo. In any case, after this film was released, that label, Wolf Warrior, began to show up in writings and statements by Chinese party members and by diplomats and other representatives of the Chinese government. And it was generally used as a positive reminder that although the government previously emphasized cooperative and non combative language and behaviors whenever possible, the new tone should be combative and confrontational, and what you might call a traditional stereotypical version of masculine. Take on opponents as if you were Rambo, or in this case, like Lung Fung, the main character of Wolf Warrior II, not like a polite diplomat. This term became more widely known and popularized beginning in 2020, as COVID-19 began to spread internationally, and China was initially, at least, perceived as both the source of the infection and as the most highly infected and impacted country. Many foreign entities used this opportunity to paint China as a global bad guy and one that couldn't even protect their own people from a plague that they either made in a lab or allowed to spread because they eat bats and other animals that are not considered to be civilized food in most of the Western world. The wolf warriors, who until this point had been more pointed but not particularly adversarial in most cases went full-on wolf in the wake of all of this criticism, and began to strike back at anyone who criticized China, its government, its people, its traditional practices, or anyone who said that China might be responsible in any way for COVID. It is safe to say that some of this pushback, and the shape it took, surprised many diplomats, but also foreign media entities which until this point hadn't really seen this side of the new Chinese approach to international relationships, at least not at this intensity and not all at once at this scale. Previously, very polite and moderated Chinese personalities in the press and in informal announcements and online on social networks, started to use language that would be more at home in a locker room or between combatants in a drunken bar fight. The translation from Mandarin to English almost certainly played a role in some of the wild insults that were thrown. But part of the shift was down to that change in government-approved and encouraged posture toward anyone who might dare to say something mean, or in many cases who might dare to say something that is not entirely and glowingly positive about China, about the Chinese people, or about the Chinese government. There are two other variables that were tweaked around this same time, which are thought to have contributed to the seemingly out-of-nowhere and out-of-proportion pivotal shift from moderated diplomatic messages to, at times, quite vicious pushbacks against any kind of perceived criticism. The first is that around this time, Chinese diplomats began to be graded as part of their overall performance review on their public relations-related activities And that meant that not only were they scored in their official capacity and performance, but also in how well their behaviors on social media aligned with the will of the government. That meant that many previously inactive or mostly automated accounts were suddenly turned up to 11 as these diplomats found that they could easily score professional points with their bosses by serving as online attack dogs for their country and government. Such behavior was being tracked and it served as tangible evidence of their loyalty and their dedication to the cause. Second is that a new generation of young diplomats who grew up with social media achieved higher positions around this time. So they were suddenly more visible, but also had that performance-related incentive hanging over their heads. So they became more active in this way, but they were also overall just better at using these types of services than their older peers, and that made their posts a lot more likely to be seen and spread by international audiences. These people were digital natives and were just at this moment coming into their professional maturity. Another shift, and this is a more macro level effect, and one that is tougher to precisely measure, but there's evidence that many people in the Chinese leadership were getting fed up with the world's response to their international activities. For instance, Xi's Belt and Road Initiative which was meant to help the Chinese government lock down important resources and infrastructure worldwide, while also helping them build a network of allies in important locations across the planet, wasn't going as well as they had hoped. And Western powers, the U.S. under the Trump administration in particular at that point in time, were seemingly keeping China from doing what all of those western nations had done earlier in the 19th and 20th centuries by going out and getting wealthy off of the labor and land and resources primarily of other poorer nations, which in the 21st century is not something that most people would admit to wanting or aspiring to. But based on work published by higher-ups in the Chinese government, it seems that there was a resentment building in the most influential Chinese class that they didn't get to do the colonialist thing that the U.S. and the U.K. and the Soviet Union and other nations got to do by basically spreading out, gobbling up the output of the planet for a while and achieving the fearful respect that these other hegemonic nations were able to achieve for themselves for a period of time. The pushback against their effort to do what amounted to the same for themselves seemed offensive and wrong and maybe even prejudiced, so the tinge of anger evident in some of these wolf-warrior statements may not be pure artifice. It could be a peek at that underlying perception that the Chinese people were being denied their rightful status as a burgeoning global power that other nations had been able to enjoy. That piece in the Herald reports on a tactic Being employed by Chinese diplomats. They've recruited an army of bots to like and retweet comments made by wolf warriors on Twitter and other social networks, and they then use that implied, if fake, popularity to amplify the reach of some of their wolfier statements about the Belt and Road Initiative, but also pretty much everything else that happens in the world related to China. This approach to exporting China-favoring propaganda was discovered after a seven-month investigation by the Associated Press and the Oxford Internet Institute. And though many of these bot accounts were eventually banned by Twitter in the wake of this investigation being published, many of them were impersonating US and British citizens and normal people from other nations as well, which helped grant some of these fake bot accounts posted statements an air of credibility to folks overseas who had no reason to doubt that they were hearing the opinions of other real human beings from their area who shared some of their beliefs and backgrounds but had very strong opinions about seemingly unfair things that were happening to China. More recently, in early May of 2021, China's wolf warrior approach to diplomacy seems to have backfired after some of their wolves posted messages and images on social media that appeared to make light of and even celebrate all of the deaths India was experiencing during a massive new wave of COVID infections. Most of these posts were very self-serving. There was one that showed a pair of images, for instance, one of those images featuring China's launch of a space station module, while the other showed seemingly endless funeral pyres burning the recently dead victims of COVID in India. That post was then paired with the text, China lighting a fire versus India lighting a fire, which is pretty clearly insensitive if not outright abusive and hostile language, given what India was going through at the time. But in this case, the message was posted by the official Weibo account, Weibo being a massive social network in China, of China's Central Political and Legal Affairs Commission. So this wasn't a young, brash Chinese diplomat posting on their own private account. It was an official government account. And in the immediate wake of international outrage following its posting, The entity that posted it received accolades and an endorsement from nationalist users who liked that it was tough on a neighboring nation, India, with which China has had many recent border disputes and which is a common enemy portrayed in Chinese popular culture. That said, other Chinese users, in addition to users and media entities and government representatives around the world, pushed back against this post and what it implied, and the network eventually took it down later that same day alongside another post that was similar in nature, which was published by another wing of the Chinese government. This utilization of what is meant to be a sort of civilian army, then, in which folks from every position and rung of Chinese society fights back against and strikes out against perceived threats to the Chinese government, has at times backfired both in the sense that it can offend the sensibilities of the Chinese people, but also in the sense that it can help unify the rest of the world against Chinese aggression that was, until the last decade or so, merely theoretical, but which is now becoming more overt and, at times, even quite vulgar and oppressive. For the last... Several years, especially during former President Trump's tenure at the head of U.S. policy, which was oriented around a strategy that was very inward-looking and which seems to have intentionally damaged quite a few of the U.S.'s international relationships, China was able to step in and fill the power vacuum left by that resource and military absence scooping up economic and infrastructural alliances in particular with nations around the world, especially in Africa and South America, but also around Asia and Europe and even in North America. Many of those alliances and agreements remain, but quite a few of them, especially the ones that were intended to be longer-lasting and which thus have been taking a while to work out and make permanent have since either been weakened or fallen apart completely, replaced by either stronger regional ties or revisited ties with the new U.S. administration. And in some cases, that severance of these deals was at least partially the consequence of relationship management by a Chinese diplomat or ambassador or business person who seemed keen to score points with their government only to have their words be published and used against them, local support for their intended projects and alliances disappearing, and political support then going in the same direction. In the near future, China will be challenged on the international stage by external entities hoping to exclude them as much as possible from infrastructure buildups as is the case in many countries with 5G infrastructure, which China is very good at building inexpensively, but which their corporate ties to the Chinese military has made inadvisable in terms of risk for much of the Western world. And there are already challenges to China's 2022 Winter Olympics, which many Western politicians in particular are saying should be boycotted because of China's treatment of minority groups, And their reported use of slave labor, not to mention their alleged genocidal ambitions for some of these groups. But these pushbacks are also almost certainly, at least partly, because anything that can be done to slow down China will likely be good, in some ways at least, for everyone else. They are at that stage in their growth and power cycle where China's gain, perceptually, seems to be the loss of everyone else. And in some cases, that perception might even be true, so there will almost certainly be more of such challenges in China's immediate future. This dynamic is unlikely to change anytime soon, and it may even increase in potency as China continues to become more powerful and influential globally, rather than just regionally, as has been the case until quite recently. It's possible that they could backpedal as they become more aware of the downsides of their wolf warrior approach and come to see this more belligerent stance as not being worth the consequences. But it does seem to be a popular approach internally, even if not universally. So as long as she and his government continue to require support for their rule and the positions that they take, there's a pretty good chance that we will continue to see this more overtly ambitious and aggressive tone internationally, despite the negative consequences for China that come with it. The book that I'd like to recommend today is called Clean, The New Science of Skin by James Hamblin. This is not the type of book that makes a dramatic sweeping thesis statement and then says that everybody must apply it to themselves, almost like the dermatological version of a diet book that is just trying to sell you particular products. Instead, it explains a body of research that we have accumulated as a species over the past several decades that often contrasts with the folk wisdom or common knowledge that we have about how best to treat our skin. And something that I appreciated about this book is that it tends to present more information than firm recommendations. There are some recommendations, But the focus is on communicating information and updating the reader's priors as to what we know about our skin and what is good for it and what is not good for it. So if any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of Clean by James Hamblin. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcript for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find my other podcast, Brain Lenses, wherever you get your podcasts or at brainlenses.com. You can subscribe to my week-daily news curation and summary email at onesentencenews.com. And you can feel free to reach out and say howdy on social media. I'm Colin Wright on Facebook and at Colin is my name on most of the other ones. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week.